So, so this is, as I say, last chapter, uh, chapter 4. It seems like there's a lot going on in these few verses. And, you know, it, it can seem hard at first sight to link them all together. But one of the things as I was preparing, which does seem a bit uh, strange perhaps, um, but one of the things I was preparing is just this theme of the book of Philippians. Do you remember that it's, it's called Paul's singing epistle? Sometimes people call it a singing epistle. Um, and the reason for that really is the joy that goes throughout the book of Philippians. It's like Paul is singing a song. And it's amazing how many times you hear him talk about this constant refrain, joy and rejoice in the Lord. And it's just a really happy, a really feel-good book. Do you remember um, when Paul and uh, Silas, it was, were in the jail in in Philippi? And do you remember what happened? They were in the middle of the jail, and um, at midnight they were found praying and singing hymns to God at that time. And it says in that verse, it says, But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were listening to them. Paul is imprisoned again when he's writing this epistle. And this time he's in Rome. It's not just in Philippi being banged up there for a few nights, but he's in Rome. And this time it's longer and it's tougher. But this chapter shows that despite that, Paul is still singing. He's still finding his joy in the Lord. You know, so often we can feel like we're in prison. We're not literally in a prison, but sometimes we can be in prison, not literally, but metaphorically. Um, in our lives, maybe prison, imprisoned in our circumstances, maybe imprisoned in difficult work or relational problems. Maybe the imprisonment that we face is not so much external, it's not so much outside us, but we feel imprisoned inside by our own emotions, by our own feelings, by, by inexplicable ways that we feel that we just can't break free from. And so we're in prison in a sense. But as I said, in that account of Paul and Silas being in prison, there's a very interesting phrase, and it says, the prisoners were listening to them. So not only as believers are we in prisons of various forms, but unbelievers are in prison in a much more real way than than we are. Sometimes they're much more in prison than, than we are. The Bible says in 2 Timothy... It says that unbelievers, he says that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So unbelievers are captives or they're snared, and they are listening to the song that we are singing as believers. So as we are in our own prisons, as unbelievers are in their prisons of unbelief, They're listening to see, what are we going to sing? What is our life going to be? Is our life going to be that song of joy at midnight? um, Or or are we going to be singing a dirge of misery and a dirge of defeat? And that's really what we see 
The theme of this verse, if we had to pick it up, would be verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And Paul is really singing through these verses. This idea of singing, a singing epistle. The Psalms, do you remember in the book of Psalms, um, the children of Israel were being carried away by the Babylonians. They were being carried away captive. And their captors were demanding of them that they would sing a song, that they would sing them a song in the midst of being hauled away off to Babylon to be captives. And it says in Psalm 137, it says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So the world is asking us a song. They're they're demanding a song in the midst of our captivity. Um, Not just any song, but they're asking a song of joy, despite our circumstances. But how can we keep singing in life? How can we keep singing in life when we find ourselves in a stinking Philippian jail? How 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 can we keep singing in our lives when we're being carried away captive, like the Babylonians? How can we do that? How can we do that? when the deafening noise of our emotions and our circumstances threaten to drown out that that song of joy completely. Well, Paul goes on here and he gives us some suggestions about how we can keep singing that song of joy, how we can keep singing that song of joy despite the circumstances we're in. I want to look first of all at um, verse 1. Notice the affection here that Paul um, addresses the Philippians with. He says that they are his beloved, um, his joy, and his crown. They're so much on his heart that he describes them as his joy, his crown, and his beloved. It's interesting, the Greek word used here for crown is the word... Now, I don't know Greek. I've just read people who know Greek. Um, (laughs) But the Greek word here is stephanos, stephanos. And the word, therefore, um, crown is really... It's the crown of achievement or the crown of victory. Um, There's another Greek word for crown and it's the word diadema and that's the crown given to a king. But the word here is stephanus and it's the Greek word given for crown of victory or achievement. And so for Paul he says, you are my trophy. That's what he says about the Philippians. You are my joy. You are my trophy. And he exhorts them to stand fast in the Lord, to keep standing fast in the Lord. In other words, to keep singing that song of joy. Keep singing that song of joy. So Paul kind of goes on throughout the chapter. We can almost see that he's giving them instructions as to how to sing that song. How can they sing that song? So if we look in verses 1 to 3, we'll just read them again together. He says, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who laboured with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So the first way we are to sing is if we're going to sing this song, we need to sing in harmony with the rest of the choir. 
You need to sing in harmony with the rest of the choir. Have you ever... Um, I've, I've tried to sing before sometimes, and occasionally my singing has been on a key which is totally out of it, and it just sounds like a real racket. And you know, as Christians, we're not meant to be soloists. So we're not meant to be singing our own little songs um, according to a key that we quite like, that sounds good to us, and singing our own tune. And that is exactly what Iodia and Syntyche were doing here. They were both singing their own songs, and the noise of that was horrendous. It seems that these two women, um, Yoda and Syntyche, they were, they were very prominent women. They uh, ministered alongside Paul and Clement. We know about them that they were the real deal. Both these women were genuine Christians because we know that their names were both written in the book of life. So both Iodia and Syntyche were real Christians. Not only were they real Christians, but they seemed to have been laboring hard uh, with Paul. So they were working hard for Christ. Um, They were probably gifted spiritually. They probably had spiritual gifts of leadership as well, these two women within the church. Um, And so they had this prominent ministry laboring with Paul. And yet, they still had this significant disagreement. They were singing this discordant song among them. And it was threatening to tear them apart and to tear the church apart. And also to destroy the witness of what Jesus wanted to do in that place. But the question is, why? Why were they singing different songs? Why was there this issue? And so you can think, well, maybe it was doctrinal. Maybe Syntyche was a heretic. Um, but you don't get that impression from these verses. And the reason I don't think Syntyche or, or, um, or uh, Iodia, either one of them was a heretic, was because Paul, we know from his other letters, that he wasn't shy about calling out doctrinal error. So it doesn't seem to be that their disagreement um, was, um, was due to a doctrinal issue. So why does Paul say then that he had to implore them, he literally had to beg them of being the same mind? Why was it that there was this issue? Well, I think the issue was that it was a good old personality clash. Have you had, have you had person- personality clashes with people? Do you know what? <clears throat> we all have our own foibles and idiosyncrasies. I have quite a few of those. Um, and the thing is, we all have temperamental weaknesses. Sometimes things that we've inherited from our parents, or maybe it's uh, genetic. Maybe we've been through certain traumas or certain difficulties in our lives. Things that shape our personalities in a particular way. And sometimes you can find in life, in certain areas, that there's no, there's no real discernible disagreement with someone. There's nothing you're disagreeing with about that person. But somehow you just don't seem to get on with them. There's something about the dynamics of personality that there's a reason, you can't even articulate it, but you just don't get on with that person. You know, that person at work that always, you don't know what it is, but you just, you just don't get on with them. <laughs> but, um, but it's interesting here what Paul says, particularly when that happens in the context of Christian ministry and Christian work. 
is what he doesn't say is give up trying to work together. Just go your own separate ways. He doesn't say that to Iodia and Syntyche, does he? Um, instead, he urges them to be of the same mind in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. So what does he mean there by be of the same mind in the Lord? Does he mean there that they should have the same mind or the same view on the issue that they were disagreeing about? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is that having the mind of Christ is more important than having the same mind on a certain issue. Having the mind of Christ is more important than having the same mind on a certain issue. And there's a difference there. We don't necessarily have to see the issue the same way, but we need to pursue the mind of Christ. Do you remember before we looked um, a couple of chapters ago at the mind of Christ, at the characteristics of the mind of Christ? And we said that the mind of Christ is a mind that pursues unity. It pursues unity. The mind of Christ is a mind which is others-centred. The mind of Christ is a mind which is characterised by a bond-servant mentality. And the mind of Christ is a mind which obeys even to the point of death. So if Iodia and Syntyche had brought into that mindset, their problems would have dissipated immediately. And Iodia and Syntyche could have started singing this beautiful gospel duet, which would have drawn other people in to the gospel, rather than repelling them. So if we want to start singing in tune with our Christian brothers and sisters, the first thing we have to do is to be of the same mind in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. That's the first thing. But the second thing about how to sing this song is to sing a consistent tune. Sing a consistent tune in your life. And that is the, that is the consistent tune of joy. The consistent tune of joy. So looking at verse 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. When the theme of our... So I keep using this analogy of singing, just forgive me. But when the theme of our life song, when the theme of our song is anything other than the Lord Jesus, it's going to be an inconsistent song. It's going to be an inconsistent song. Sometimes it's going to be a happy song. Sometimes it's going to be a bad song. It's going to, it's going to oscillate between being a, a victory song and a dirge of defeat. When the theme of your life song is about the perfect family life, about being fulfilled in your career, about the most exciting holiday, then your life song is going to be inconsistent. It's not always going to be joyful. But Paul says here, rejoice in the Lord always. Not sometimes, but always. Because the Lord is the source. The reason is that all these other themes of songs that we can have are shifting, unstable, and variable. So it's all okay when, when you know, your job's going well, and you're singing a song of victory about that, or your family life is hunky-dory, or whatever it may, else it may be. But when Jesus is our song, when his goodness and his mercy 
And his faithfulness, are the song of our life, we'll be able to sing a consistent song, a song which is consistently joyful. And you know, one of the things we need to do practically, so another preacher was telling me, I was away on an Oak Hall holiday, and one of the things that the guy said that I thought was really, really good is he said, practically speaking, you need to find what gives you joy in the Lord. What gives you joy in the Lord? Now, that's not absolutely the same thing for every person. For some people, for all of us, it's spending time in the Word, it's spending time in prayer. But what gives you joy in the Lord? Maybe for you, it's just going for a walk in the countryside. I know it sounds simple, but going for a walk in the countryside, seeing the the beautiful golden browns of the autumn, seeing the sunset, and just seeing God's goodness in creation. And maybe that's something that gives you joy in the Lord. That gives me joy in the Lord. But maybe the thing that gives you joy in the Lord is that special Christian friend you've got where you, you look in, into the Word together and you spend time encouraging each other. And that thing gives you joy in the Lord. Maybe you're musical. I'm not that musical, but maybe you're musical and you play the guitar or you play the piano and you sit in your room and you just... Maybe Clayton does this. And, uh, <laughs> and you just play out a song to the Lord, a song of love to the Lord Jesus. And that gives him joy. But whatever it is, there's practical things that we can do in our lives to pursue joy in the Lord. Find out what gives you joy in the Lord and pursue that. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And it's a consistent tune. It's a song of joy consistently. The hymn writer put it well. There was a hymn writer in the past, someone called Nahum Tate. Isn't that a great name? And he said this. He said, through all the changing scenes of life, in trouble and in joy, the praises of my God shall still my heart and tongue employ. Through all the changing scenes of life, in trouble and in joy, the praises of my God shall still my heart and voice employ. So, sing a song in harmony with the rest of the choir. Sing a song, sing a consistent song. But thirdly, sing a song marked by a gentle tone. Sing a song with a gentle tone. Um, In verse 5, it says, Let your gentleness, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Let your gentleness be known be known to all men. The song we're singing as Christians should be a bit more like Mozart than Metallica. I'm sorry to any um, Metallica fans. <laughs> but the life, <laughs> the tenor of the life song that we're singing should be more like Mozart than Metallica. What do I mean by that? Very sadly, some people have brought into this idea that harshness and belligerence equates to being non-compromising and godly. People have brought into that idea, some people within the church. It's very sad, very sad. The tone and character of our lives should be marked predominantly by gentleness. Not only is gentleness a fruit of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus himself also described himself as being gentle. He says, doesn't he, in Matthew 11 and verse 9, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. Gentleness. We're to be gentle in our dealings with other believers who are going astray. In Timothy it says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Gentleness. Meekness. Kindness. We're also to exhibit gentleness to those who are not saved yet. Those who are not saved yet. I want to read you these verses. I find these verses really important. Something Jesus said. Um, Because we can easily go down a wrong path. Jesus said, When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Huge amounts of damage. Excuse me. Huge amounts of damage have been done to the cause of the gospel by individuals and ministries that are more of the spirit of James and John than the gentle spirit of Jesus. Take Westboro Baptist Church as, a, as an example of that. Our lives and ministries are to be marked by gentleness, not just a natural diplomacy, something more than that, a supernatural infusion of the gentleness of Christ himself. Because as we live out this gentleness, as it says here in uh, verse 5, as our gentleness becomes known to all, people will be attracted not to us, but to the Jesus who says that he is gentle, the gentle one. So sing a song marked by a gentle tone. But fourthly, sing a song of confidence. Sing a song of confidence. Verse 5. The end of verse 5 says, The Lord is at hand. Why should we sing a song of confidence? We should sing a song of confidence because the Lord is at hand. What does that mean? Well, there's two senses of the Lord is at hand. Firstly, the Lord is at hand in terms of time. With each passing day, we're drawing nearer and nearer to the time when Jesus will physically return from heaven and we will see him face to face. And he's soon, he, he, he will be our deliverer. He will come from heaven. We're looking for a saviour from heaven and he will come to us and he will deliver us and we will see him face to face. So the Lord is at hand in that sense. It says in Romans 13 and verse 11, it says, And do this, knowing the time, that it is now high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Jesus is our salvation, and we are literally nearer to seeing him face to face than the moment you first became a Christian, than the moment you first accepted Christ. We're nearer to seeing him. The Lord is at hand in terms of time. But do you know, there's another way that the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand in the sense that he is present even with us now by his spirit. He is literally, for us who are Christians, he's closer than a heartbeat. Closer than a heartbeat. Because his spirit indwells us. So he's closer than a heartbeat. The Lord is at hand. It says in Hebrews, it says, be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, 
I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. He's dwelling with us now by his spirit. So we can sing this song confidently at the top of our voices, knowing that the Lord is at hand. And you know, in a world where everything is so shifting and so changing, and there's so much uncertainty, and there's so much anxiety, being able to sing a song of confidence in the Lord will shine out like a beacon in the night, a song of confidence. But fifthly, let's look at um, verses 6 to 7. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Why do we pray? Why do we even bother? Because Jesus says in Matthew 6 and verse 8, it says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So why bother? Why bother? You know, it can be a rigmarole to pray, can't it? Why go through all this rigmarole of praying? God knows what we want anyway. Why don't we just give up praying? But we need to take a step back and we need to realise what prayer is. Prayer is an expression of our dependence on God. It's an expression of our dependency on God. Our society elevates the idea of autonomy. It elevates the idea of self-reliance. But prayer is an expression of our dependency on God. There's a very good book about prayer by a guy called Paul Miller. And he wrote about this relationship between prayer and dependency. Between prayer and dependency. And he said this. He said, We've got an allergic reaction to dependency, but this is the state of the heart most necessary for a praying heart. A need heart is a praying heart. Dependency is the heartbeat of prayer. I love that. A need heart is a praying heart. A need heart is a praying heart. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that we present our requests to God. We, we present our burdens to him. We lay down the things on our mind that are troubling us. Not because we need to inform him, by the way, God, did you know that? <laughs> but because we're expressing our dependence on him for the grace that we so desperately need. A need heart is a praying heart. A need heart is a praying heart. Do you know that peace at the moment? Are you experiencing that peace of God now? Or is it a bit like you're in the parable of the sower and the worries and the cares of this life are coming in and they're choking out the word of God in your life? Is the word of God being choked out in your life this morning? Pray, dependency, present them to God. Amen. And the idea in verse 7, it says, this peace guards our heart, just like a garrison, a Roman garrison would protect a fort so our hearts get protected from the worries and cares of the world. The peace of God, it stands on guard, stands on watch against the things that are coming against us. The peace of God, the peace of God. And how, uh, there's no magic formula to attain this peace, but just dependent prayer mingled with thanksgiving, as Paul tells us in verse 6. Um, and we're getting on through the chapter now. So uh, verse, uh, verse 8 um, 
let's just read those verses together. It says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So, sing with a disciplined mind. Sing with a disciplined mind. Our thought life determines the kind of song that we're going to sing. Our thought life determines the kind of song that we sing. Someone very clever once said, a man is not what he thinks he is, but what he thinks he is. We are what we think. But the issue is that unfortunately for us, Having a, having a sinful and fallen nature, we face this barrage of negative and destructive thoughts all of the time. Not only do we face them from within ourselves, but also the media and the world around us are constantly pumping out messages which are distorted and which directly oppose the truth of God. They directly oppose the truth of God. And as a result, our minds are assailed by all sorts of thoughts that we feel like we're at the mercy of. And it's very important to remember, if you're struggling with that, that we cannot always control what enters our minds. We just can't. Sometimes thoughts come into our minds which are unbidden. We didn't ask for them to be there. We don't want them there, but they're just there. Sometimes the thoughts are there because of the inner workings of our mind, of our subconscious. Sometimes it's just the influence of the sinful nature. Sometimes it may be even demonic activity. But for whatever reason, we have these unwanted thoughts there. Martin Luther was, you know, the guy who kicked off the Reformation, probably remember him. Um, <clears throat> and he said, you can't stop a bird flying over your head, but you can stop it nesting. In your hair. You can't stop a bird flying overhead, but you can stop it nesting in your hair. You can't stop what thoughts float in and out of your mind, but you can stop them taking root and nesting there, basically. So sometimes people really focus on removing these bad thoughts. How can I remove the bad thoughts themselves? But actually, that doesn't often work. Sometimes, if you actually try and remove thoughts that are wrong, it actually ends up amplifying them conversely and making them worse if you try and do that. But interestingly, this, these verses here, <clears throat> they don't so much talk about focusing on removing bad thoughts, although I guess we're called to do that, but we're called to replace them. Rather than resisting them, which we are called to do, we're called to replace them, to choose to change the focus of our minds onto something nourishing and healthful. So whatever things are true, the truths that God says about us and about him rather than the lies of the world and the lies of the enemy. Whatever is true, we need to meditate on that. What's one of the most important of those truths? It sounds very simple. But one of the most important truths is that God loves you. God loves you. It's very simple, isn't it? Nothing profound. But one of the most important truths is that God loves you. Because it says that God so loved the world, so he loves everybody in the world. And just knowing the truth, we don't always feel loved by God, but we need to change and replace our minds by the truth of God's word. Whatever is true, whatever is true, hold on to that. But not only whatever is true, but whatever is noble, 
just, pure, lovely, and of good report. There's so much corruption. There's so much moral degradation and rubbish out there, to be honest. I'm afraid to say it. I sound like I'm getting very grumpy and old. But there is, there's a lot of rubbish out there on the television. There's a lot of rubbish out there on the media. And we do need to be careful what we allow into our homes and our minds. And we need to discipline ourselves and guard ourselves so that we're focusing on things that are pure and things that are noble and things that are good report. And also it says, um, if there is any virtue... And if there is anything praiseworthy, we have to be willing to recognize goodness and virtue wherever it may be found. Wherever it may be found. I think that's important to say because you and I probably have non-Christian friends. um, And there are certain things about their lives. I've got non-Christian friends. And there are things that I really value about them. Um, I value the fact that they work really hard in their job. I value their family lives. I value the good things that they do. Um, and it's important that if there's anything, any virtue or anything praiseworthy, wherever that may be found, we should be kind of lapping it up and, and encouraging that. God's common grace to all creation, whatever is praiseworthy, wherever there's any virtue, we can rejoice in these things. And as we meditate on these things, as we meditate on these things, the life song that we sing will increasingly reflect our thinking. The life song that we sing will increasingly reflect our thinking. So finally, in verse 9, sing like the best. Sing like the best. No, not Madonna, the, um, the Apostle Paul. Sing like the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul says, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So next to Jesus, I think Paul, really, is probably the most beautiful example of someone who sung out this gospel song all of his life. His song was consistently joyful, despite all the suffering that he had. It was sung in harmony with the other believers. It was sung with a gentle tone. It was sung with a confidence in God. It was sung with dependence and trust. And it was sung with a disciplined mind. And when we see Paul, we see a living flesh and blood song, not just notes on a page, but we see those notes translated into a powerful melody, a melody that Paul taught and he spoke and he lived out in his life. Paul was that tangible example that we see in verse 9. And then what does he end with? What does this section end with? It ends with the promise That as we sing the same song that Paul sung, as our life becomes a song of praise to Jesus, and we sing it in the same way that Paul sang it, that the God of peace will be with us. The God of peace will be with us. So even when we're sitting in that prison, whatever prison you're facing today, whatever you're going through, whatever prison you're facing, when when you feel like you're shackled in that prison, the God of peace will be with you. And you can sing that song. And not only will we know the God of peace with us, but the prisoners who are with us in that prison will hear that song reverberating. And they will be drawn to the one who is the constant refrain of our song, Jesus himself. Jesus himself.